You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Today, I'm pretty excited about what we're talking about. Because today, we're going to be looking at... Well, I'll just put it this way. It is hands down my favorite part of the Gospel of John. And the reason for that is this. Today's story, what we're going to look at, what we're going to see is, well, quite frankly, it's quite awkward. It's, it's raw. It's at the same time, though, there's this, this rich theology in this story that's also highly practical, highly relevant. It's great. See, what this one story does, better than I think most of the parts of John's Gospel, is this one story gives us this beautiful encapsulation of who Jesus is, what Jesus is like, and why He came. But I should also warn you, this story, and it may be why I like it so much, this story has a tendency to make religious people incredibly uncomfortable. It does. That's probably why I like it. I like to make people uncomfortable as well. But while this this passage makes people uncomfortable, I believe this passage gives us this incredibly refreshing and compelling look at Jesus. See, the heart of this passage, what this passage truly reveals is how Jesus actually sees us. Beyond our doubts, beyond our insecurities, beyond anything that we normally put on ourselves or any of the labels society puts on us, Jesus seems to ignore all of that and just see us for who we really are. And it's pretty stinking cool. And so this morning, I invite you, open up with me to John chapter 4. I want to show you this story. John chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 to 27. As you can tell, that's, that's quite a large chunk. And for that reason, we're not going to be throwing it on the screen. But I highly encourage you to have it open in front of you as I'm going to refer to different parts of it as I go throughout this sermon. Again, that is John chapter 4. It's on page 726 in your pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, just take that one with you. We have tons of them. We would love to give it to you as a gift. But also you can pull it up in the Bible app. John chapter 4. Now, while you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of like a preview of what we're going to see today. Okay? In essence, what we're going to see is just Jesus encountering a woman at a well. And that may seem innocuous, and that's okay. I'll also tell you, I don't know what happened to the, uh, the mic. You guys catching that? Okay. Are we good? What do you want to do? We're not good. I'm going to go to this guy. We're going to go right here. Okay. And what we're going to see in this sermon, really quite simple, is this. Jesus is going to encounter a woman at the well. And I'm going to argue that I think this woman is one of the most relatable characters in all of scripture. And that's going to be a little odd when you hear her background, but here's why I say that. This woman, more than anything else, is just trying to figure out life. She's trying to get the most 
out of it. And for years, she has recognized that this day-in, day-out existence that she is living isn't what she wants. She wants more. And so she's looked forward to this day, or she's idealized this dream life that she just feels like, oh, if I could just get there, if I could just work hard enough, if I could just earn it, if I could just do something, I'd get there. The problem for this woman, though, is as she has pursued this leap from her current existence to this idealized dream state, she's made such a mess of her life. If anything, you could say while she's reaching for this dream, she's made her day-to-day life a nightmare. And because of the nightmare she has made her life, because of the way she has messed up her life, the decisions she has made, she is above all else, of all the people we've met in the gospel so far, she is the very last person you would expect Jesus to talk to. But that's just it. He doesn't just talk to her. He doesn't just engage her. Through this story, you're going to see Jesus do something radical. He offers her something that will change her life forever. So that's what we're going to look at, John chapter 4. I'll also tell you, their conversation is a little odd. It kind of wanders all over the map. But I promise, if you stick with me, it will make some sense. So John chapter 4 begins like this. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. But he had to go through Samaria. Now, I'm just going to assume most of you aren't up on your ancient Israelite geography. So this means nothing to you. So I'm going to try and make a little sense of this here. Okay, Jesus is ministering in the southern part of the country where Jerusalem is, but his hometown is in the northern part of the country. To get through it, he has to walk through this piece of land that most people try to avoid. To make this as relevant as possible, let me put it this way. It's as if Jesus is ministering in Orange County and wants to make it to beautiful Santa Barbara. The problem is, to get there, the fastest route is he has to go through the land nobody ever wants to go through. L.A. Okay? You could go around L.A., right? Some of you are thinking, well, you could take the 57 down to the 210 and cut over. You could do that, but it takes you so out of the way. It's much faster to go through the 405. That's essentially what Jesus is doing. He's taking the 405. All right. So after taking the 405, he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar, which, as you all know, is near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. Okay, the sun was directly overhead. At that time, a Samaritan woman came out to drink water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples at this point had gone into town to buy food. In other words, it's just Jesus and the woman at this well. The Samaritan woman said to him, "Um, Sir, you're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Who are you to ask me for a drink of water? And then John tells us, for for Jews and Samaritans, they didn't associate. They didn't talk to each other. But Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw water with and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this water? 
Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from him himself and he gave some to his sons and his livestock? Are you greater than him? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will well up inside of them and become a spring of water that is eternal life. Well, the woman said, well then, sir, give me this water. I don't want to have to come back here. I keep getting thirsty. So he told her, all right, I'll give it to you. Here's what I want you to do. Go, call your husband and come back here. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, I know. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the guy you're with now, he's not even your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, that's how I read it. That was a little too on the nose. Let's change topics. <laughs> I can see that you are a prophet. So she asked him a religious question. Changing the subject here. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. See, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, while we Jews worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father both in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father speaks. God is spirit and his worshipers must also worship in spirit and in truth. And again, this is how I interpret the woman's response. Yeah, I didn't really get that either. But that's okay because I know that a Messiah will come. That is the Christ. And when he comes, he's going to make sense of everything. He's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus, in the most emphatic, explicit way possible, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the guy. At this time, the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But nobody asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Now, I recognize that I exaggerated parts of this story, right? But I feel like you kind of have to because it's a little odd. It wanders all over the place. Did you catch this? I mean, one moment they're talking about getting some water. The next moment they're talking about her marital history. And then they're talking about proper worship venues. This is a confusing conversation that just wanders all over the place. But the one thing that is painfully clear to everybody reading this, including the disciples, and when the disciples come back, it's made even more explicit, Jesus had no business talking to this woman. There is no reason that he should have engaged her in the first place. And there's a number of reasons for that. The first is what I'm going to call her questionable moral character. See, if you're just reading this story for the first time, you're going to notice a couple interesting things. For instance, this woman comes alone at the hottest part of the day to do her daily chores. 
See, it was a woman's responsibility to go and grab the water. They didn't have indoor plumbing, right? And so you had to daily go out and grab water and bring it back for your family. If you had to do this daily task and you regularly lived in the desert where it was hot and you knew what the weather and the temperature was going to be like, you would not have chosen the hottest part of the day to make a long trek and then lug back a massive jug of water. You wouldn't do that. And so you have to wonder, why is she doing it? Why is she doing it at a time of day when nobody else is around? Why is she alone? Well, as we continue to read, her story becomes a little clearer. Because we find that this is a woman who's been divorced five times. And the guy she's currently living with isn't even her husband. Now, we live in a, in a relatively progressive society. And when we read this, even we go, there's something off about that. That's not normal. It makes you pause and go, what's going on with this lady? But if that's how we react, imagine how this woman's culture would have reacted. Remember, she's coming from a deeply religious culture where sexual immorality was at the top of the list of evil things you could do. I mean, you could just imagine how her own people treated her. She was a social outcast, a pariah. Nobody wanted her. I mean, you can imagine what the women said about her behind her back and why they didn't want to engage her. You can imagine what they told her husband, their husbands. Hey, you've got to stay away from that lady. And so she's alone. And yet Jesus, who is fully aware of who this woman is, has no problem striking up a casual conversation with her. Hey, can you give me some water? But as the woman comments, the moral barrier isn't the only issue here. Jesus is doing something that he shouldn't be doing on a couple different levels. I mean, she calls it out in verse 9. You see that? He, she says, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. I mean, the, the main inference being, you're a man. I'm a woman. We don't talk. Again, this isn't something that we necessarily relate to because men and women have no problem talking in our context. But you know that in many Middle Eastern contexts or Asian contexts, this is still something that takes place. Men and women do not have idle conversation for the fear that it could be viewed as improprietous. You just don't do that. And you certainly didn't do that back then. But even that's not the biggest barrier here. Even that's not the main reason Jesus shouldn't have engaged this woman. As she makes abundantly clear, it's because of all else. This morally questionable woman is a Samaritan. Ooh, the Samaritans. You're like, okay, I've heard this all the time in church. What was so bad about these guys? Well, let me try and make sense of the Samaritans. Okay, for centuries, there is bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans for a number of reasons. The first is this. The Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. They weren't full Jews. They were Jews that had intermingled and married non-Jewish people. And so they were of a lesser status. But that's not the only problem. For years, when there was different empires that would come and conquer Israel, the Jews and the Samaritans often took different sides in the battles. Their relatives had literally killed each other. I mean, this is a big deal. But even more than that, as you see in the discussion, they have religious differences. The woman believes you're supposed to worship on Mount Gerizim, while the Jews believe you're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. 
That's one difference. But even still, while they had their differences, they had some similarities. I mean, clearly the woman anticipated a, a messianic figure, a messiah to come who was going to make all things right. And you would think, okay, well, maybe they can get along. But actually, that's even further part of the problem. Because it'd be one thing if they had a completely different religion. But what upset the Jews even more is that they took the perfect religion and they further defiled it. And so because of this, there's a ton of animosity that exists between Jews and Samaritans. In fact, it was believed by many Jewish teachers that Samaritans were in this perpetual state of uncleanness. And if you simply encountered a Samaritan, their dirtiness, their filth, their, their outside impurity, it would rub off on you. In fact, I mean, as all of you know, there's this really famous saying from the first century from a Jewish rabbi that says if you were to break bread with a Samaritan, it's no better than you munching on a pork chop. And if you can remember, Jews and pigs, they don't really go along together. I mean, that's how Samaritans were viewed. And so the thing that becomes abundantly clear from this passage is that Jesus had absolutely no business talking to this woman she was way beneath him. She was morally questionable of the opposite gender of his people's racial, ethnic, cultural, and religious enemies. And yet, this is just the craziest part of this whole story. He doesn't just talk to her. They don't just have a casual conversation. He does something with her he has done with literally nobody else up until this point in the story. He reveals who he really is. I mean, did you catch this in verse 25? If you look at it, she's saying, yeah, I know one day there's going to be this Messiah figure that comes. And then explicitly in the next verse, he does something he doesn't do with anybody else. He goes, yeah, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. He doesn't reveal this to anyone else, not even his own disciples until much later in his ministry. Now, I'm hoping there's at least one of you that goes, well, hold on, John, because last week you told us when Jesus turned the water into wine, that was his coming out party. And he told everybody that that's how he's the Messiah. And you're right. And more importantly than anything else, wow, you pay attention to me. That is, that is just, that is the most exciting thing. And to you, gold stars, see me after class. Thank you very much. But you're right. I did tell you that that's his coming out party. And it's true. But he never explicitly said, I am the Messiah through that miracle. He just left his actions to do the speaking. But here, he's making it abundantly clear. No, no, I am the guy. And I really don't know how to overstate this. I don't think I can exaggerate how big of a deal this is. I mean, you have to think about it. This is the Messiah. This is the long-awaited hero of both the Jews and the Samaritans. This is God's chosen guy to fix the world. And who does he first reveal himself to? Not some king. Not some great religious figure. Not even his own disciples. The first person he intimately and personally reveals himself to is a Samaritan sinful woman. This is shocking. 
I mean, as you saw, this is literally so shocking that when his own disciples see him talking to her, they're left speechless. Nobody dared ask him what's going on. They couldn't even muster a complaint. But this really shouldn't surprise us. I mean, church, think about this. Every time we see Jesus in the Gospels, he is constantly doing this. He is constantly engaging people, not as society sees them, not as they've even labeled themselves. He engages people for who they really are. When Jesus sees this woman, he doesn't see her for her race. He doesn't see her for her religious background. He doesn't see her for her brokenness, her mistakes, her doubts, her insecurities, her failings, her sin. He just sees her as a woman trying to figure out life and apparently failing miserably at it. She's just a normal person, and he meets her on that level. Now, as you read this, you have to ask yourself a couple questions. I mean, this is at least what comes to my mind in the midst of this. You have to wonder if this is how Jesus engages this woman. And as we see, this is how he engages a ton of other people in the Gospels. I mean, whether it's the, the, the leper or the blind people or the guys we're going to look at next week that's been laying by the pool as a cripple forever, Jesus never sees how society sees people. He always sees them for who they are. And if that's how Jesus sees people in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, then how does Jesus see us? How does Jesus view you? I mean, let me stop and let me, let me rephrase it a different way. If Jesus was fully aware of this woman's baggage, the things that brought her the most shame in life, what makes you think he isn't aware of your baggage? That stuff that haunts you, your sin, your brokenness, that stuff you bury so deep down and you beg God, don't let anybody else find out about this. And then you cover with this incredibly elaborate facade so that nobody can even get a hint that you're not as good as they like to think you are. Jesus sees through it. Look, you may sound as religious and look as religious as anybody else. You may make, look, the Pope look sloppy. Jesus doesn't care, just as he didn't care with this woman. And so he meets her where she is, he draws near to her, and he invites her into a relationship with him. And if that's what he does with this woman, we can infer he does the exact same thing to you. See, Jesus knows who we really are. He knows our ugliness better than we know it ourselves. And yet it doesn't prevent him from drawing near to us. In fact, all throughout the gospel, it seems like our brokenness is the thing that attracts him to us. He has come to help us out and bail us out. And if that's true, that also means one other really important thing. When you go to approach Jesus, you don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend that you have it all together. You don't have to act more religious or more righteous than you are. You don't have to wear fancy clothes or go through some re elaborate religious ritual. Stop and think about that. Because that is counter to literally every other religion out there. Every other religion that exists in the world is all about what you have to do to go and approach the God or what it takes to approach their idea of, of 
I want to go with nirvana or, or, you know, that idea of what we're aiming for in life, the grand purpose of life. It's on you. But as Jesus makes abundantly clear in this story, this woman is just going about her daily tasks. She hasn't gone to church. She hasn't offered a sacrifice on her behalf. She's just living life. And he meets her in that space. And he asks her to just be real. That's how he encounters you. But even more than that, if this is how Jesus encounters people, if this is how Jesus deals with other people, you have to also stop and reflect on, is this how you engage other people? Is this how you treat people who are not like you? Look, I'll be the first to admit, I, I will confess openly, I am just as quick as the next guy to judge people. I am wonderful at thinking I am better than everybody else in the room. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're an obnoxious Democrat, an arrogant Republican. I don't care if you're an immigrant, an atheist, a Muslim, a Buddhist. I don't care if you're transgender. I don't care what it is. I am so quick to label people. And I don't think I'm alone in this. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, it is natural for us to slap a label on somebody else and then after we slap that label to categorize a person in a certain box and treat that person as we treat everybody else in that box and ignoring the fact that they're an individual, ignoring the fact that they're not defined by their label. We all are guilty of this except Jesus. He is the one person who is never deterred by labels. He never sees people as the world sees them. He never even sees us as we see ourselves. He sees who we really are. And deep down, who are we? We're just a bunch of people trying to figure out life. I mean, I don't care where you come from. That is the one thing all of us have in common. We're just trying to make it through. Look, one of the things that I have come to discover about my job in being a pastor is I have conversations with people I would normally avoid at all costs. People who are just not like me at all. And it's an incredible privilege. I'm, in, I'm so grateful for it because there have been so many times where I've sat curbside or bedside or at a table with someone who is so not like me. And they feel free to start sharing their story. When they find I'm a pastor, it's this weird thing. Well, I should be honest. They, they either begin to tell me their story, or they get really awkward and figure out how to escape the conversation. It's one of the two things. But typically, they begin to tell me their story. And then the way they start their story every time, I mean, it's like a formula. Pastor Chris could agree with this too, is when people find out you're a pastor, they immediately need to tell you their church attendance track record. Like, uh, well, you know, I grew up in church. I haven't been in a long time. Well, I've never been to the church thing. Oh, I go to church every week. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. But then, and this is just the humbling privilege, is they open up. People tell me stuff that they just don't tell anybody else. It's kind of creepy. And they just, they're honest. And as they start sharing their hopes, their desires, their dreams, their own brokenness, the pains, the losses that they're continuing to process, the one thing that becomes abundantly clear to me as I sit there and I listen is, I am no different than you. I mean, we may, we may have absolutely nothing in common on paper, 
We may have completely different political views. We may have a completely different understanding of sexual orientation. We may have a completely different understanding of, I mean, you, you name it, skin color, religion, whatever. But as I sit there and I listen to these people continue to process their life with me, I can't help but go, yeah, I'm no different than you. I mean, honestly, I have sat on the phone many times and I've heard somebody, you know, they're just venting about their, their marriage or they're venting about their children. And I go, yeah, I'm, I'm no different than you. I had a conversation with this Buddhist widow like a couple months back that has just stuck with me. And I'm sitting there and this guy who's just wrestling to try and figure out life, I'm just going like, yeah, we're really no different. Or the transgender teen that's sitting across from me crying in my office because she's trying to just figure out well, how do I fit in life? I'm no different than you. I'm no better than you. I'm no smarter than you. I don't have anything more figured out. I'm no righteous, more righteous than you. I'm no more pure than you. Literally, the only thing that sets me apart from most people I talk to is that I know a guy. I mean, that's literally all I got. I don't have life figured out on my own, but fortunately, I know a guy. And so all I do in these conversations is I point them back to the guy that I know. And this brings us to the last, most shocking element of this story. I don't know if you caught this in the story. This is the part that makes religious people squirm. See, it's not just that Jesus talked to this woman he shouldn't have talked to. And it's not just that Jesus revealed his full identity to her as the Messiah. That's, I mean, that's, that's crazy big. But that's not what is so appalling about this story. What's so appalling is what he offers her. Did you catch this? Verse 10. He offers her living water. And admittedly, it, it's not very clear what that is. And so in verse 14, he gets even more clear. He offers her something that nobody else can offer her. Something that will fully satisfy the deepest desires of her heart. Something that will radically transform her life. He offers her eternal life. This is huge. Jesus doesn't just engage her. Jesus doesn't just reveal who he is. Jesus offers her eternal life. No strings attached. Here you go. This infuriates religious people. Now, I want to be clear because I know some of you, when I say eternal life, you naturally go to, well, that's what happens when you die. And it's understandable because since the Middle Ages, that's what the church has diluted the idea of eternal life to be all about. That somehow when you die, then you enter into eternal life. But that's just not at all true. That's not what eternal life is about. Now, I want to be very clear. That does not mean that there isn't eternal life when you die. Eternal life is this rich term that absolutely encompasses what happens when you die. But it's more about what happens today. See, when Jesus talks about eternal life, he's not just going, yeah, if you accept me as your savior, you know, 60, 70 years from now, when you die, then the good stuff comes. No, no, no. He says, I want to come into your life and I can radically transform it now. I'm offering you something that has the potential to change today. That's 
revolutionary. That's eternal life. See, when Jesus is talking about eternal life, what he's getting at is that longing each of us have in our hearts. It's that universal human condition where we recognize there is something about our day in, day out human existence that isn't all that we want it to be. That isn't all that it should be. That there's something missing. There's this, this leap we want to get to. How do we get there? There's something about that where we know right now we're just existing, but we know, oh, we have the potential to flourish. We have the potential for more. How do we get there? How do we experience this satisfaction, this contentment, this joy, this, this sense of understanding and peace and hope? That regardless of what life throws it off, we're going to make it. How do we get there? That is the universal human condition that Jesus is addressing. The Old Testament word for this, if you remember, is, is shalom. Shalom. It, we, we normally translate it peace, but the better understanding is this idea of completeness or wholeness or life as it should be experienced. That's what Jesus offers this woman. And it's radical. Because again, I want to make this very clear. He says to her, you can have it. Life. The highest quality of life there is. It is yours for the taking. But you can't get there on your own. You need me. No TED Talk. No bestseller. No human effort, no matter how good you are, no matter how hard you work at it, is ever going to get there. And look, guys, I don't feel like I need to justify this. I think every single one of you in this room can go, yeah, that's true. I mean, we can work and we can try as hard as we want and we get glimpses of the good life. But it's like a fleeting memory. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm not here to offer you a fleeting memory. Come, take my hand. I'll give it to you right now. Follow me. Trust me. Listen to me. And now I know some of you are thinking, hold on, you said he doesn't require anything of her. But he says, you have to go and drag your husband and bring him back. You have to go and bring your husband and come back. Yeah. Think about this. What is he getting at in the midst of this? Her marital history is clearly her great issue. I mean, he fully calls it out. He nails it on the head. It is so uncomfortable for her that after he calls it out, she shifts the conversation immediately. Why does he say you need to bring your husband to me? The short and simple answer is because that is the one area of her life that if she doesn't bring that painful, broken space, that thing that haunts her, that thing that she has buried and tried to ignore, if she doesn't bring that to him, if she doesn't lay that at his feet, if she doesn't invite him into that space, she's never going to experience the life that he offers her. And so he, plain as day, in a painful way, calls it out and says, bring it to me. And you're going, well, why do we have to bring this stuff to him? Well, here's a very simple way of putting it. He's the guy that literally wrote the manual on human existence. I mean, he's the guy that knit us together. He's the guy that when he sat down to plan creation, he mapped out what humanity was going to be like. He goes, I'm going to wire them this way. He is the author and perfecter of life. And so he says, if you want to live, if you want to experience the fullness of what God has to offer you, you have to bring it to me. Do you see why I love this story? 
This is an incredibly rich theological story, but that's not all. It is so practical, so relevant, so relatable. Because when we look at this woman, we see someone we can all identify with. I mean, I assume most of us have not been married five times and are sleeping with some guy that is not our husband at the moment. But all of us, deep down, can relate to the fact that we are in this state of existence, this day-to-day existence that we know is not all we were made for. And we, like this woman, are desperate to get there. And what we see in this story is this same invitation of grace that Jesus offers this woman is the exact same invitation of grace he makes to you. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to work yourself into it. You don't have to go to church a thousand times. You just be you. Bring yourself as you are to him and allow him to speak into your life. Trust him. Allow him to correct you. Allow him to prompt you to say, you know what, I need to acknowledge this sin. I need to acknowledge this isn't how I'm living. Allow him to speak to those areas of brokenness and say, I forgive you. Oh, I can fix that. You have to allow him in if you're ever going to actually experience that life. But he literally extends a hand and says, I'll do it. I'll help. See, church, here's the thing. You can continue to try to experience this life. This life that you, we all relate to. We all want. You can try and do it on your own. You can try and find it in a TED Talk. You can try and find it in a bestseller. You keep trying your effort. It doesn't work. I mean, how many times do you need to keep trying and failing until you realize this? Well, the other option is this. You can just stop trying. And you can stop and just go, all right, all right. I keep hearing about this Jesus guy. What do you got for me, Lord? What do you got? All right, I'll lay my baggage. I'll sit there in the private space of my home and I'll tell you what I've, what's haunting me. I'll lay it there. What do you want me to do with it, Lord? I mean, you could take it and actually bring this to him and allow him to speak into that space. I mean, here's the beauty of it. We already know he knows about it anyways. Like, it's one thing for you to come and tell me your stuff, right? I don't know you that well. But it's another thing to go and tell Jesus, who already knows it. He's like, oh, yeah, I'm waiting for you to tell me that already. You can do that with him. I mean, it's a powerful thing. And I don't care if this is your first time in church or you're one of those uterine Lutherans we talk about. You know, born in the church. It doesn't matter where you are on that spectrum. This idea, this invitation isn't a one-time thing. It's a daily invitation. Hey, John, lay down your opinions, lay down your ideas, lay down your thoughts, lay down the way you're going to treat your wife, all of it. Give it to me. I will shape it. I will inform it. I will bring life. See, this is the one thing I know. All of you want that life. The only thing that becomes clear in Scripture, it's only through Jesus. Let's pray.